0: Good to see so many out. When we first heard this morning how many would not be here, we weren't quite sure who would be here. So um, glad to see you all here. And I thank the Lord what has occurred already this morning. We've been taught out of the Word of God. And um, even with a small group, we are able to lift our hearts in worship to the Lord. I know it's many times more inspiring when you have a larger group and the singing resonates and you're inspired because you can hear and, and all that is a blessing. That's part of it, and yet the main part is our hearts, those words as we sing to the Lord. Well, we've not had a time of prayer still this morning. I don't think so. So why don't we just stand for a word of prayer, if you can, please. So, Lord, we're grateful to you for the health, for strength, for life. And we thank you, Lord, that we trust that you are able to work in our lives. As we think of the area of judging think of the area of compassion. I think of uh, how you gave an example, Lord. You were both righteous in your judgment and you were also compassionate. Lord, you are our example. Lord, we do pray for those who are sick. And I'll just pray for Brother Moses, especially this morning, that uh, you would bring healing there. And there are others as well that are sick. Pray, Lord, that your purpose and will and design would be done and you would bring healing and uh, bring restoration to those in our congregation as well. Lord, we just think also, we think of this nation and the various uh, issues that it faces and do pray, Lord, you would give the government officials, Lord, direction how to, how to navigate and how to do it wisely, Lord? How to navigate the situation we have and to do it with wisdom. And we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, Amen. If you see it, the verse that we're going to focus on this morning is the one that I had last time I had a message. You don't need to turn to it because we we'll look at some other verses first, but. It's the verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And so this is the second message on a character study of Satan. And you might ask, why do we study Satan? I had asked that the last time. And it says here, well, Paul says that Satan has a possibility of getting advantage of us hes he has he has a potential to outsmart us to to um, get one over us unless we are aware unless we are aware of and are familiar with his schemes i've heard it both ways i you, I've heard it said already that when they teach a teller or someone who handles money, they don't teach them all the forgeries. they just just teaching the real thing. Then I had someone else tell me that is focused. That's not how they do it. There are, there are common forgeries, common mistakes made in people that counterfeit money, and they get familiar with those as well. So I think it's probably both. And I suppose that would be the thought this morning, that yes, you need to know the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also need to know the common schemes of the devil. The old adage is not true, what you don't know doesn't hurt you. Naivety can be the equivalent of vulnerability and gullibility. And you can turn actually to Proverbs chapter 7, as I make my argument of why we should study the devil and his tactics. I'll get to the title later. Proverbs chapter chapter 7, and we'll start at verse 6. For at the window of my house, I looked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones. I discerned among the youths, a young man, void of understanding. Passing through the street near her corner, he went the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with a tire of an harlot and subtle of heart. Now, if this young man would not have been ignorant of her devices, he would have never been there at that time of the evening. But he was simple. That means he was naive. He lacked sense. Either, and before we judged the man, right, before we put a judgment on this man, <laughs> either he was not taught, So he was not taught and as such was ignorant, Or maybe he was taught, but he didn't listen well. Or maybe he was just flat out rebellious. But one thing we know, he had no idea of the scope of what he was getting into. And then we'll drop down to uh, verse 20, 21, the same chapter. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver. As a bird hasten to the snare, and knoweth not that it was for his life. He knoweth not that it was for his life. This simple, untaught, or ignorant, or rebellious youth did not know that it was for his life. He should have had someone older and more experienced take him aside and teach him and instruct him and give him some wisdom. That's what he should have had. But he didn't. Somebody to teach him with earnestness. And uh, actually, he should have had what happens here in verses 24 to 27. Hearken unto me now, therefore, all ye, o ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways, go not astray to her paths, for she has cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. And the point I'm making here is if we stay only on the positive, if we only tell the youth what a good marriage is, and we should, and we should tell them that is what they should pursue and we should. But if we don't warn them of the techniques of the devil, if we don't warn them of the the issues of the internet. And the smartphone, or wrong friends, or pornography, or movies, or romance books—all those things—if we don't expose the common ways that a that that people get uh, waylaid and sidetracked and destroyed—if we don't do that—they may never they would they will bring into marriage a lot of baggage, or they may miss it altogether. So that's my point is, why do we study Satan? Well, we, we, we pursue the Lord Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. He is the ultimate. He's the source of life. He is the victor. He is our sustainer, and, and everything that goes with it. In fact, in First John chapter three, it talks about Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's part of the ministry of Jesus, to undo and take away and destroy the work that the devil did in us. But Jesus also said that the whole world lies in wickedness. The whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. The devil has his sights on us. In fact, he's called a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, in our first message we had about the character of Satan, we became familiar with Satan's perfection and beauty as the creation of God. God created all the angelic beings, and it seemed to me as I studied that the most perfect and the most beautiful angelic being was named Lucifer. It was the son of the morning. Then we saw how the devil... Uh, Lucifer became proud and he initiated a rebellion against the eternal God. And how that rebellion failed and how God brought judgment on him and will someday destroy him. And now the devil and how the devil being repulsed of his rebellion in heaven came and came to take over God's creation instead. He failed to take over heaven, so he tried again on earth, and he had a lot of success on earth. He got Adam and Eve to forsake God and following him. Then that means he got the world, and that means he got all the posterity. He got a mass following on earth. And were it not for God's redemptive work, that would be the end of it we would be in the devil's clutches, he would be our king, and there would be no redemption. But as we looked at last time, as you very well know, God immediately began to initiate a redemption. When he told, when he gave that promise to Eve that someday there's somebody going to come and uh, Satan's going to bruise his heel, but that person is going to crush the head of the serpent. And that was the first of the gospel. Now, sometimes we get the idea that when Jesus came and he did that combat with the devil and he overcame and he died on the cross and then he resurrected, we get the idea that sometimes he won such a victory, such a victory in this battle, that the victory's been won And basically all we need to do is mop up the mess and we can go home. I don't think that is a correct view. That, That perspective is not a correct view of the devil and how the situation is. It is true that Satan has been defeated by Jesus, by that cross and resurrection. And and you might ask the question, and these are theoretical questions, did the devil have a chance to win? Did the devil have a chance to actually overcome Jesus and could he have gotten Jesus to sin? If he would have got, been able to get Jesus to sin, the whole plan of redemption would have been a failure in God's sight. And I know we can have discussion, what well, could have he done it? or could have he not done it? And we're not here to answer it. The fact is Jesus won. He won one over the devil and that clinched it the devil has absolutely no chance of winning in the end that's clear but the point is the devil is still a powerful foe and he still runs this world and we live in the enemy territory and so it's not a so matter that the devil's now defeated and all we got to do is mop up the mess and go home it's not it's not that's not the situation that we find ourselves in so the devil his fate is sealed he is not going to win his rebellion is going to be a failure but like we observed the last time the I wills of God the devil had five I wills I will ascend I will become like I will ascend to the throne and all those had those five I wills and they were they he was not able to do that Then God gave a bunch of I wills in judgment, but most of those judgments are still in the future. In fact, Paul, in his letter to the Romans said, to the Romans at the end, near the end of that letter, he said, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. (laughs) Seems like a long time, doesn't it? But it hadn't, Satan was still operating, and he is at this point. So for the time being, the devil is a formidable foe. He is powerful, he is deceptive, he is persuasive, because he never lost his power or his wisdom when he fell. He just changed, instead of serving and worshiping God, and doing what God wanted, he has changed, that power has now been changed, and he had become a king in his own right, now he don't write, it's a usurped <laughs> throne, but he's become and used all that power for himself. He stole and usurped Adam's dominion and he became a ruler of this world. And this world is now his kingdom. So his original plan, like I said, to usurp God failed, but he did set up a rival kingdom to God and he has temporal success. And I want to just give you, just to clinch what I've been saying, I'm going to read to you uh, a few verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You don't have to turn there because I'm going to read it in another paraphrase which brings out, I think, it brings clarity to the King James would need a message to unpack some of those wordings. So I'll just take a shortcut and use the paraphrase. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Paul is telling the Thessalonians they thought it's coming, the the day of the Lord is coming very soon. But he said, that day will not come unless the rebellion come first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God Claiming that he himself is God. That's Satan's desire to be worshipped. And he's going to do it in a, in a way in the future that is even beyond. It's going to be more open. Let's say it that way. And keep on reading here. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back, for he can be revealed only when his time comes, for this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. But the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. And that's the point I want to bring out. Satan will be destroyed at the second coming. So he is truly a defeated foe and his end is sure, but do not make that as a mistake that he has been stripped of his influence and power now. So back to that verse in the beginning, lest Satan should get an advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. Satan and his demons are our enemies. We as God's people are deserters. You know what? A a deserter does not have a high image when you desert. That means you leave one team and you go to another. But we are deserters. We deserted the devil's kingdom and we went to God's kingdom. The devil used to have us. Uh, So we uh, shifted our allegiance from him and to what he offers to Jesus and his rule. Now, it's one thing to have an enemy over there, but it's another thing to have someone that used to be on your side and they left you to go on the other side and now they're fighting against you. I mean, first of all, the devil doesn't love anybody. He just hates God and anything that God made. But he will doubly hate people He doubly hates those who go over to God's side. The devil is not pleased. I remember reading, and I'm not sure how frequently it happened, but I know it happened, that in in the Cold War era days, when the Soviet Union and the United States were enemies of each other, there was this power struggle on a world scale. The two superpowers of the world were, well, you say, almost at each other's throat. They were mortal enemies. The Soviets had their vision to take over the entire world with their communism, and the United States had it to to uh, well, to uh, keep communism from expansion, further expansion, at, at the very least. Now, some people from the West went to the Soviet Union because they believed in that philosophy or ideology, but most people wanted to come the other way. And that's why the Soviets had to put up their infamous wall, their fence, to keep the people from just coming out in droves. But every once in a while, a higher-up government official would defect and come to the West. It could come to America, or it could come to uh, Britain, or some other place. But though they were now in a free country, and they were no longer under the power of the KGB, they were still not safe. The Soviets, especially the higher up, the Soviets had secret operatives in these countries, and they did not want these government officials to either leak what they, what they knew or even just enjoy their life there. And there's a number of them got killed even after they were in a free country. The Soviet Union was highly motivated to destroy any benefit that their former citizens had in the country they fled to. They did not love these people because they were now the enemy. So it's, the goal was to destroy them. So we used to be part of the devil's ideology. We used to live for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But we accept, and we accepted the devil, we accepted his terms, and we lived there. But then we saw a better way. We saw that we were run by a tyrant and that... It was oppressive and it was a dead end street and it had no good in it. And then we saw there was a better country over there ruled by a better king that had better promises and had better provisions and had a future. And we made a decision to desert this country and go over to this one. And we escaped. We fled our birth country and became naturalized citizens of the country we escaped to. And we're blessed. Now, are we safe? Are we safe in this country? Are we completely outside the influence and danger of our former ruler? Can we let our guard down and not be concerned about the devil? And of course, we know the answer is no. The devil does hate us. He is an angry enemy and he has schemes. He has schemes to take advantage of us. And as Ephesians six eleven says, to put on the whole armor of God that ye be able to stand against the wiles or the strategies of the devil. So Satan works against God. He keeps people from coming to God if he can, and when when then he works to get people away from God once they are God's people. So he has schemes, he has devices, he has subtleties. And this is the title of the message this morning, Satan's modus operandi. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Modus operandi is Latin for mode of operation. It's a common term that is used in business, I believe, Or criminal investigations and so on. Satan's modus operandi. It's a particular way or method of doing something, especially one that is characteristic or well established. So, we must understand how the devil tends to operate so that we can protect ourselves and avoid his trickery. Wiles means a trick. It's a strategy to overcome or trick someone, like a snare or a trap. Like that young man that went out, he had no idea that he was going to be trapped, but he was. If he would have known it, he could have stayed out of that trap. The devil is not out front what he's doing. He lies in wait and watches for his opportunity. And God's word alerts us to these strategies. And it's actually more. I'm not going to do at all any kind of justice to this this morning, but we will look at a few. And the number one strategy is pride because of success. And the reason I have that as number one is because the first time we find the word Satan in the Bible is in one Chronicles 21. You can turn there, 1st Chronicles 21. And it's the first time that we find the word Satan in the, uh, in the Bible. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David. To number Israel. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even unto Dan, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. Why did David want to number Israel? That's a little bit of speculation here, but basically he wanted to know the number of people. It's either pride or self-sufficiency or it's just simply, you know, Satan knows that we have a tendency to pride. And we have a tendency to pride of all kinds, in fact. Uh, Pride comes in so many ways. You can have a message on pride like you have a message on judging. We have pride when we think we're better than others. We are proud when we think we are worse than others. We are proud when we boast about ourselves and we are proud when we depreciate ourselves in certain situations. When we're self-righteous, we are proud, pride and it's, and it's pride that causes us to have self-pity. So here David did what might have been an innocent endeavor, but it was not. Satan actually stood up against Israel. He wanted to get Israel, but David was in the way. He wanted to destroy God's people, but David was there, so Satan was alert and he watched and he waited and when he saw an opening, he came in to David and he provoked David to do something. That provoking from Satan was a it was a wrong issue in David's heart. And he saw it. He saw his weakness in David. He saw his pride in David's heart and he took advantage of it. And you might say, well, why, why wouldn't he? The devil fell because of pride. His thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Talking about Satan. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. So the devil will recognize whatever pride you and I have in our heart. He will know how to provoke us and get us to go out in pride. I, I don't know if we recognize how much of an enemy we should have against pride in our own hearts, in all its forms. Because Satan knows it, and he can, he will use it to his advantage. It was Nebuchadnezzar's failure too—pride, success, which caused us, or um, pride because of success. Even after he was warned by Daniel, this is what Nebuchadnezzar said: "Is this not, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom?" for the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. You know, that was raw pride. Uh, most of us aren't that raw. But we too are vulnerable to this tactic when things go well for us. When, um, if we if things go well for us and we have a blessing and if we do like David did when he was given a promise by God and he comes and sits before the Lord and he says, who am I, O Lord, that you would do this to me, that you would bless me as I have. I'm a nobody. I just came from the sheepfold. Why would you do this to me? I don't deserve this. I have this success in spite of myself. It was you that did it, not me. How can I use this success to bless others? If we had that kind of heart with success, that's good. But that would be a righteous response. But success produces special challenges. In uh, in First Timothy, it talks about ordaining elders. In chapter 3, it says... Don't ordain a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So why not ordain a new believer? He's saved, he's educated, he's gifted. Maybe he even has the desire for it like Titus, like Paul recommends in the letter to Titus. Why not give him the charge? as one paraphrase put it don't do it lest the position goes to his head it's that success of position before you're ready for it even the great apostle paul was not immune to this you know in second corinthians chapter 12 verse 7 you know paul was blessed with revelation and he said this and lest i should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. So Paul saying, to keep me from being proud, I was given a messenger, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Now, this, I haven't figured this one out. Satan looks for opportunities to cause pride in this case, Satan was used to humble Paul. <laughs> this will be our afternoon discussion. How does that work? God, it seems like God uses Satan's tricks on his own. He turns them on his head sometimes. That's what I get out of this, unless you have another idea. But Paul, Paul was very successful with his revelation and So um, we don't actually know what this thorn in the flesh was, this many ideas, but it was very, very painful for Paul, and he did not like it. In fact, he repeatedly asked God to take this away until he understood this is what it takes to keep you down, to keep you humble, and keep you weak. And he said, okay, I'll gladly take it. So Paul's success in his revelations was directly checked with a big, great, unsurmountable problem in his life. (laughs) Do you want a big, great, unsurmountable problem in your life? Maybe that's what we need. So are things really going well for you? Or do you really wish everything would be really going well for you? there are a lot fewer people that can handle true success than those that can handle failure. So, there are times in our life when we do succeed, when we prosper in a given area. Whatever it may be, whether it be financially, whether it be relationally, whether it be even spiritually, you're prospering. Just remember, that is actually a time of vulnerability. Paul was close enough to God to have have it counteracted even when he himself didn't recognize it at that time. I think I missed something here but I don't know where it is. Anyhow, so one of the devil's schemes is to tempt us to pride when we are successful. Be aware the devil's lying in wait, if things are going well for you in whatever shape or form or you are, your children are doing better than others, uh, your, uh, your business is doing better, your, your, whatever it is, be actually aware that is actually a time of vulnerability. It's, it's a time to bless God. It's a time to rejoice. But be aware of the devil's tactics. That's the point here. Number two is bypassing the cross. And you can turn to Mark chapter 8 for this one. Mark chapter 8, and we're starting at verse 31. This was actually taught at the uh, Bible school at Harmony this year, uh, this portion of Scripture. Starting at verse 31... Jesus was with his disciples, and he said, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders. He must suffer, and he must be rejected of the elders of the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he, Jesus, had turned about and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. I brought this along today. Some of you may not have seen it if you weren't at Bible school. Jesus began to teach them, and this is what um, Mick, Mick Brewbaker gave this illustration. Hopefully you can see it all. Jesus already has given the Jesus path. He said he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, and he's going to be killed. Then he's going to rise again. And Peter said, no, no, that's not my idea of Messiah. That's not right. And then Jesus rebuked him and then he taught something to all his disciples and he said and when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also he said unto them whoever will come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this is what Jesus had to do this is what he calls all his disciples to do and then he gives some definition for whosoever shall save his life shall lose it but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels the same shall save it and then he says, well what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world now we have this saving your life path you're gaining the world And lose his own soul, or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me, ashamed of me, and ashamed of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So I'm not going to teach much on this. Um, Basically, the Jesus path... This was the path that he needed to take to to rise again, the resurrection and and defeat the enemy. This is the way, the losing path that all Christians must take to be saved, Deny, take up the cross, follow Jesus. This is the way that the world is on. They gain the world, they're ashamed of Christ and they're ashamed of his words and they get lost. And the reason I, I chose this one as one of the techniques of Satan, is because Peter did that. And Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. It was Satan influencing Peter to get Jesus to bypass the cross. There was a specific path Jesus had to go, and he needed to stay on it. Even though it was the hard path, it was countercultural. It didn't meet the prevailing expectation of the Messiah. But it was the path of the Father. And Peter, like I said, he was serious. He said, No, not that. But then Jesus said, Peter, Satan is influencing you. And that's what he does today. Satan influences us to take another path. Is one of his techniques. Like Satan did to Peter. Now the word, um, the word that Jesus said to Peter, he said, thou savorest not the things that be of God. And Mick did a little bit of study on that word savoring, and I'm going to look at a few of th- those places the word savor means to relish or set your affections or set your minds on something. And that very familiar verse in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, it says, set your affections on things above. That actually is to savor the things that are above. And what's, what is above? Well, it's Christ that sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections, set your savor on on the Lord Jesus and his will. And what would we do instead of that? Well, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And what are the things on the earth? Well, that's Satan's kingdom. That's the things of earth. That's the temporal kingdom. And it's lived out by his subjects. So Paul is telling the Colossians to 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 stay on this path and to not put their mind on that path, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth uh, there's one other verse in Romans chapter eight verse five, and it's a, it's just simply a parallel to the whole thing for, for they that are after the flesh do mind, do savor the things of the flesh, and they that are after the spirit, they savor the things of the spirit. And there again, you have very clearly the two kingdoms. You have one kingdom who savors the things of God and the other who savors the things of Satan. So flesh there is used as a synonym for Satan's rule and spirit is used as a synonym for Christ's rule. And everyone is following one rule or the other. Now, why do you think The devil wants people, Christians, to bypass the cross and to savor the things of men. Why would Satan want to do that? Well, because he is the ruler of the things of men. He is, like I said, Satan attempts to keep people from coming to God. And when people have come to God, he attempts to bring them back. And that's exactly what he is doing there with Peter. I think of the political situation we are in today. You have the conservatives on the one side and you have the liberals on the other side. You have conservative Christians on one side and you have liberal Christians on the other side. Believe me, there are a lot of Christians on the left. Most of them are liberal. Well, we should vote to end abortion. We should vote to save marriage. No, vote to bring justice to the poor. Vote to give mercy to the poor person who's in jail because we judged him too harshly. Vote for law and order. No, vote for love and mercy. And you have these two political sides there. And the one side... Or the other side pulls on us depending what our personality is or what our training is or what our values are. So Christians in this country are pulled one side or the other. However, this pathway, the way of power and politics, is the way of men. We live in this realm, but our allegiance and our obedience are to the Lord Jesus. The way of sacrifice and the way of faith and the way of suffering. So we, we are to walk the way of sacrifice. We are to stand up for marriage and we are to refuse abortion. We are to help the poor and give a merciful hand to the needy. We are to exhibit love and mercy like Jesus did, but not in man's system of government, not by force, not by law. The government has that mandate, but God's people do not. And we bypass the cross when we take up earthly power. That's one way Satan gets people to bypass the cross. Another way to bypass the cross is when we become lukewarm and complacent. When the issues on the heart of God no longer touch our heart. When we become comfortable and easygoing and luxurious. When this world becomes our home and we use this world as a playground rather than a battleground. We, when we vacation instead of war, when we feast instead of fast, when we are entertained instead of praying, when we eat, drink, and be merry. Now there is a time for recreation and relaxation and enjoyment. I remember sitting across the table from a a couple at a wedding this past summer and uh, it was a non plain couple. But I could tell immediately that the wife was, she was sensitive to what she ate, but I could tell that he wasn't. <laughs> and he was sort of chunky. And I think I saw a little bit of her trying to help him with his portions. I think I saw some of that. But I said to her, well, I said, this, after all, this is a wedding, this is a time to there are times to feast and there are times time to fast and then there's time to feast. And she just said, well, you ask him when he fasted last. Okay, end of discussion. But that's the point. There are times for recreation and relaxation and enjoyment. It's not evil. In fact, it's good. In fact, I was meditating on a certain passage recently and I discovered something new for me. Uh, It's in Matthew, I'll just read the verse, Matthew 10, 42. And whosoever shall give a drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water, only in the name of the disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. And I thought, now why didn't Jesus just say, give a cup of water? Because if you really need water, if you're really thirsty, if you're dehydrated, it wouldn't matter if it's warm or cold or hot or what. Water is needful. But he says cold water. That means Jesus would, you give someone not just sustenance, you give someone comfort and enjoyment. And Jesus said that's a good thing. A cup of cold water water so the idea of lying on a hard bed with a board for a pillow or no pillow at all that's not godly the idea the whole ascetic idea who thought that denying the comforts of life is is the way to get closer to god is not correct now it there's possible elements of that but that that whole idea is not a correct idea I have come to understand that God is pleased when we enjoy a good cup of cold water and a good meal and a good visit with friends. God is okay with that. He is pleased with that. But what about those periods of fasting? And what about we we what we deal with is not that we don't do that. We just we live in this land of peace and plenty and we can get lured to become complacent and soft when we are in a war and in warfare and the enemy is looking for ways to get at us. So so uh, the devil gets our minds By lulling us to sleep, get your mind off the warfare, off of heaven, off of our king. By giving us these comforts and pleasures. And if he can do that, he has achieved his purpose. So, occasional family recreations, which are a benefit to relationships. Or occasional excursions and occasional cabins, whatever. But when that becomes a lifestyle... It, it, and I'm not telling you where that is. I'm just telling you that there is a way where Satan would like to take us bypass the cross where we actually become at home in this world and become comfortable and at ease and we forget what we're here for and we don't actually not involved in the kingdom warfare. And we actually savor the things of men. And that could be whether it's earthly methods of government or earthly methods of values and comforts. So we still dress differently. Our cultures are unique. But our values are the values of men. We seek our own pleasure and our own vacation, our own securities and our own retirements. And we bypass the cross and we don't follow Jesus you know, the lust of the world and the pride of life is going to pass away. All our glitz, all our glamour, all our dainty looks, all our macho, everything that appeals to the eye and to the mind and to the flesh and to our status, it's all going to pass away because it's not of God. So my plea here is be sure the devil is not getting a wedge in here, with us, with you and myself in this area. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Okay, number three is false teaching. Satan has always, from the beginning, perverted and corrupted the word of God. And the verse that we have, you can turn there if you want to, in Second Corinthians chapter 11... We have this verse, verse thirteen, for such are false prof- false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if its ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. And also in First Timothy chapter 4, the first two verses about the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter days, latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisies, having their conscience sheared, seared with a hot iron. John D. has said there are a thousand ways to miss a bird. There's only one way to hit it. So the heresies and the errors and the deceptions are almost limitless. So what does the devil do? What would be his scheme to get a sincere or a casual seeker to fall for him? Or even a believer to fall for him. Well, Satan offers mankind light. Back in the garden, he said, your eyes will be opened. Satan transforms himself as an angel of light. Knowledge, illumination. This is one of the great alternatives that Satan offers to the world, and even to God's people. Now, I I tried, and I said, now, okay, now, how how can we make this practical? And maybe this next one is not as practical to many of us here, but it is a practical one. And so I have some practical ways. So Satan offers mankind light. Well, one of the lights that Satan offers the world is, and God's people is, stick with me here, because I just talk about it. Higher education. You know, education is lifted up really high in this world. We have a one and a half trillion dollar student loan debt. One and a half trillion dollars. That is a lot. And yet the push is still to go on to this. Education is absolutely valued by our society. Psychology, to understand the human soul. Sociology, to understand how people can function together without God. Evolution, in its many forms, to understand how the world came into being without believing Genesis. <clears throat> Psychology, humanism, and science are all platforms for the devil. There's a hero inside of you. Man is progressing, he is improving. The devil offers to improve you, he's actually very helpful. He is your best friend. He has your best interest in mind. And probably God is the bad guy. Education will really liberate you. And I will say, higher education has taken millions away from an explicit faith in God. It surely has to be one of the devil's successful methods to infiltrate and to misdirect the people of God, to get them to switch from a heavenly kingdom perspective to an earthly one. Now I'm speaking this as one who loves to learn. I really enjoy discovering new things and new ideas and new concepts. I believe that education is good for God's people within boundaries. But anyone going to a higher learning had better be properly prepared and have an accountability team around them and know what they're going for. Now there's a story, John D. I, I don't remember all the details, but he did go to college. And he did tell me, or I heard him say it one time, and he had that, I don't know if it was directly to me or whether it was on a message, now, he had an argument with his dad. might have been might be the only argument he had. But he was arguing with his dad after he was going to college about the teachings of Sigmund Freud. His dad had never heard of this guy, this psychologist that was prevalent in that era. Never heard of him. But he knew that what he was teaching was not biblical. And he discussed that with his son. And I guess, I don't know, John, he, he could explain it exactly what was happening in his heart. I don't know. But, and I don't know how, how close or how quickly or how nearly. I don't know how he fared in his college. He, he ended up okay. But many, many don't. So you can ask him for better details. But Satan offers light. He offers the light of education. They said that's the pathway to freedom and illumination and a successful life. And I say, I would say, except in a narrow realm, it is a pathway to the devil's kingdom. Satan offers light, but he also offers not just educational light. He offers spiritual light. He offers his darkness, his spiritual darkness as light. That's actually what the Gnostics of Paul's day promised. They promised illumination, but it wasn't God's illumination. And so modern television programs such as the Da Vinci Code and seances and fortune tellers, and, and I could go down the whole list. I didn't make a whole list this morning as I was getting ready, but... There's a whole lot of mystics and, ah, yeah, a whole lot of spiritual light that the devil offers to illuminate yourself. Maybe we could, could include yoga, and we could include yin and yang, and we could include, I don't know what's all out there. Knowledge is offered. It's secret knowledge, but it's dark knowledge unless it comes from God. It's not knowledge you want. It's knowledge that will bring you into bondage. That's what it will do if it's from the devil. Just like Adam and Eve got knowledge, but it brought them into bondage. And it's no less so today. I can often hear the background of secular programming when I talk to people that are not Christian, when I talk to them about God, and they are skeptical about the Bible, about the text of the Bible. They are skeptical about the historical Jesus. They are skeptical about lots of things because they have been educated by the educators and they train them. The devil offers light, but it's darkness. the foundational perspective of most of those people is one of doubt. They doubt, like I said, the the scriptures and the historical, they doubt that their sexual values. We live in modern times now. We know better, and there's there's an arrogance against the old ways, and we are better than those ways. And then this presses on, and I'm telling you, this, this kind of, this kind of thing presses on to God's people and it presses on to God's people's children. And I've talked to God's people's children who have capitulated to that. See, the devil offers light. What Eve did not recognize, that the garden was a protective place for her, but the devil got her to see it as a prison. Now, did that knowledge, seeing it as a prison, liberate her? No. But that's what the devil does. He twists the word of God. That place was a, a, a protection, and he made it into a prison until they wanted to get out of it and got into real prison, real bondage. Jesus is actually the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. Another one, another uh, light that the devil offers is the health and wealth gospel, the evilism gospel, the nominal gospel, whatever that is. That means I was born a Christian, therefore I'm good to go. A mystical experience gospel, a liberty gospel. And maybe I told this before, my old Lutheran friend that said that you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then your sins are forgiven and any, any requirement other than that is works that actually destroys the gospel salvation he says your salvation does not depend on your works we got to be qualified but it actually does <laughs> the path one takes Makes all the difference to be translated to be born again into the kingdom of God to a change allegiance from Satan to God from this world to the world to come to come will most definitely result in a different life. So, the devil does understand human nature very well and he knows how to get at people, he's good at quoting Bible verses, he's saying. He's good at saying things that are mostly true, but they're misleading. And by the way, if the devil ever says anything that is actually true, he still has a deception somewhere in there. The devil is a liar. He's the father of lies. Just like the God is the father of truth, the devil is the father of lies. And he has deceived the whole world by his lies. He has seducing spirits and he has doctrines of devils. You cannot believe Satan. He's a liar and he is good at it. But all those teachings that I was talking about, these light that Satan offers, they all deviate from the path Jesus laid out for us, the path of denying ourselves, taking up his cross, our cross, and following him so I'm only scratching the surface of the devil's modus operandi there yeah I don't think I have another message on it I just uh, maybe maybe we'll have another message on how to actually protect ourselves more in the area of spiritual warfare I'm not sure what the next message will be but I want to say here a few verses right now out of Peter as we close here. Be sober, be vigilant for the devil as a roaring lion seeketh whom he may devour, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. So we are not to be anxious. We are to lay our cares on him. He cares for us, but neither are we to let our guard down. We are to fully trust the care of the Savior even as we watch out for the enemy. Christians who don't watch, who aren't sober, who are not vigilant, get devoured by the enemy. The leaders, church leaders, are to watch over the sheep, over the souls of their people so that the devil does not devour them. So we have Satan's modus operandi number 1 pride because of success number 2 bypassing the cross number 3 through false teaching and then I want these last words of Peter that are so precious in context here ye therefore beloved second peter chapter 3 the last verses that he the last words of peter ye therefore beloved seeing ye know these things before Beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. May God bless you. And uh, may, we, may we be interested in each other's lives and help each other. I need your help and we need each other's help.